On January 13th, Leonard Brown, an Afro-Indigenous land defender, was beaten and arrested over his efforts to reclaim his people's ancestral land in Trujillo Bay, Honduras. Land that was usurped by investors seeking to exploit it for tourism projects. Brown, a member of Ofrane, the Honduran Black Fraternal Organization, which fights for the territorial and cultural rights of the Garifuna people of Honduras, was greeted by jubilant supporters after being released from jail the next morning. He faces a series of charges in connection to his efforts to protect Garifuna territory and could be imprisoned if found guilty. Leonard Brown is by no means the first land defender to face reprisal for his activism. In 2015, Garifuna community leader Vidal Leiva was shot three times outside of his home by attackers he believes were sent by the Canadian developers who have been seeking to acquire Garifuna ancestral land on Honduras' Caribbean coast for the tourism projects. Fortunately, the Garifuna land defenders have not let themselves be intimidated by these sorts of acts of violence or by the efforts of the state to use the courts to weaken their struggle. Brown, like other Garifuna land defenders, counts on the support of his people and the determination of his community to defend their territory. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Super Exploitation and Resistance podcast, powered by Common Frontiers and allies in the Canadian labor movement. This podcast brings the voices of labor leaders, activists, organizers, and social movements to a North American audience. We share the perspectives of people on the front lines of social struggle and change in Latin America. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja, a Mexican freelance journalist based in Mexico City with a decade of experience supporting social transformations and revolutionary struggles in Latin America through my work in activism. Raul Burbano, a Colombian community organizer in Toronto and program director for Common Frontiers, is our producer. On today's episode, we're going to take a look at the struggle by Afro-descendant and Afro-Indigenous peoples to defend their territory. Capitalist development in Latin America is a violent process. Extensive efforts are made to try to crush entire communities that stand in the way of so-called progress in order to secure access to their land. One of the frequent targets of these efforts to dispossess people of their land are the Afro-descendant and Afro-Indigenous communities. But of course, it's not just a question of access to their land. As one of today's guests, Carla Garcia, told me, there are no Garifuna people without their territory. We will return to Carla and the Garifuna people's struggle in the second half of our program. We begin today's program in the community of Buenaventura, Colombia. Buenaventura is Colombia's largest Pacific port city and home to a key piece of infrastructure that facilitates trade with Asia. Wealth flows through Buenaventura, but that wealth does not make it into the hands of the city's majority Afro-descendant population. Tired of this abuse and a long series of broken promises by political authorities, activists and organizers in the city formed the Buenaventura Civic Strike Committee, which coordinated a civil strike that paralyzed the port city in Colombia in early 2017 in protest over a lack of services, security, and long-standing government neglect. The strike suspended operations in the port city for more than 20 days and served to finally get the attention of the authorities. We speak with Maria Miguela Riascos, an educator, anthropologist, member of the Civil Strike Committee, and someone who promotes environmental and human rights in her community. She tells us the historic context of the struggle of the Afro-descendant people in Colombia. Historically, America Latina 
Historically, Latin America, Colombia, and especially Buenaventura and the entire Pacific region, that is, the departments of Valle, Chocó, Nariño, y Cauca, where the majority of the Black population of African descent are located, have been territories where we've had a systematic denial in our rights, a systematic neglect, a systematic violation, a structural racism. Here in these territories where we have not enjoyed rights that we are entitled to for being people. So it has been this way historically. I was born in El Anchicaya, and there was no school. They had not set up a health center. There still isn't one. There are some health posts in Sabaleta, in a community, but in poor condition, without the necessary requirements for proper care. So it has been a systematic neglect. It has been a denial, an effort to make us invisible. And there is even a law, the second law of 1958, if memory serves me right. And that law is a law by which it is said that these lands are wasteland. That is to say, here there is no one. There are no people here. Black people do not exist. And we can also see in the Constitution itself, in the Constitution of 1886, we Black people did not exist in Colombia. Only we came to exist, legally speaking, in Colombia in 1991. And it was not a product of the government seeing that we Black people are here. No, sir. It has been the product of the struggle of social organizations and the union with the other groups, in the case of Colombia, with the indigenous groups, Black people and indigenous people in the 1990s, from the entire exercise of the National Constituent Assembly, came together to struggle, came together to fight, to demand our rights, but also with other sectors that demand rights in this country, and also the mestizo peasant sector. And this is how we have achieved gains. It has not been because of the Colombian state with its governments that has said that the black community must be recognized. We have never had that. What the black communities and the indigenous communities closely linked together have is the product of the struggle. Often in order to win support for these so-called development projects, the government and investors promise the moon. They tell people in these communities that these investments will bring jobs, security, and progress. But Maria, who herself is a victim of the armed conflict and was forcibly displaced from her home many years ago after armed paramilitary groups threatened her community in rural Buenaventura, says that investment is aimed not at redistributing wealth, but rather controlling territory, and as a result, has only brought more violence. The people have been impoverished through that investment because it is an investment in war. If it is an investment to remote violence here, in Colombia, this investment does not interest us. That investment is a bad investment because it is an investment that comes to destroy the essence of the people. That investment entails displacement, more violence. What we need here is social investment, because here it is clear, here in Colombia, in Buenaventura, that violence brings more violence. And yes, here in Colombia and in Buenaventura, there previously were armed groups, and there are armed groups. We should ask ourselves, why? Why are there armed groups? Why were armed groups there? And it is because it has to do with how precarious communities live, 
And for that reason, this whole phenomenon occurs. So aid from different countries like Canada, like the United States, like Europe, should be aid for social investment, to improve in health, in education to help that. Buenaventura is land that has nine hydrographic basins, but we do not have drinking water. In the houses that receive drinking water, it arrives four hours a day, every other day. And these are the people that we can say are blessed because here there are people who have not received water in their house in eight days. So carefully with this investment, what you call an investment, be careful with that because if there are investments to promote more violence, you're not interested. Because any man, any woman who dies in Colombia, who dies in Buenaventura, one of our brothers, even if we do not know them, be they black, indigenous, or mestizo, whatever they are, they're Colombian, and they have no right to assassinate them. We do not want this investment that kills, that neoliberal investment that kills, that investment in free trade agreements, that investment that promotes mechanized mining, that damages the territories, that damages the water, that damages peaceful coexistence. We do not want this type of investment like those that free trade agreements bring. 17 free trade agreements pass here in Buenaventura, and the people here only see wealth coming in and going out. But the people of Buenaventura have nothing left, only the dead. So we do not agree with this neoliberal project that promotes companies such as port expansion, for example. They continue to expand and continue to remove black people from their territories and murder us, massacre us, stigmatize us to take away our territory. Here the issue is territorial dispossession. And with those famous investments in the framework of the neoliberal vision, that vision of a project of death, it does not strengthen us. It impoverishes us. It kills us. It takes us out of the territory, and that is contrary to the black community. Maria is not exaggerating when she says that these neoliberal projects bring poverty and death, because, as she says, here the issue is territorial dispossession. These development projects usurp the ancestral lands and push them out. That leaves many with the conclusion that the only choice is to fight back. We have a triple struggle, because in the context of the pandemic, for example, the pandemic has shown us once again, for the people who still had doubts, that the places where the Black community is in Colombia, they're the places that people are most impoverished. They're the most humble places, the most unfortunate places. We can prove it. Now, when the pandemic started, we didn't even have an intensive care bed. Not even one. We didn't have one. Only in a private clinic, there were 12 ICU beds in a place with a population of more than 500,000 inhabitants. We managed, through the civic strike, to open the second-level hospital, but we don't even have all the programs that are required to make a second-level hospital. So that fight has been constant and permanent because there is no guarantee of our rights. There is no guarantee of the right of a contextualized education. We have a sea. We have nine hydrographic basins. And education is not designed to make us feel proud. Proud of what we are, of what we have. We have water wealth. We have diversity in plants, in animals, and even some that are endemic to this area. No book in the world is reported on them. But our education is not designed so that we make use of all that wealth that we have and that we could develop 
from an ethnic perspective, from an endogenous development, a perspective from below. They always want to identify what we have so they can steal it. Where the state does have a presence, and it does not reach all the places in the rural area of Buenaventura, which is 97% of the territory, it comes to oppress us through the state security forces, with the army and with the police. They arrive to oppress us. So we say it is structural racism. The situation facing the people of Buenaventura is sadly the perfect illustration of the reality that many Afro-descendant and Afro-Indigenous peoples throughout Latin America face. The state, if it has any presence at all, isn't there to meet its social and constitutional obligations. It is there to repress. And as Maria said, to identify what resources exist in order to steal them. And this whole process is underpinned by systemic racism. In the second half of our program, we're going to take a look at the struggle of the Garifuna people. Though in many ways similar, the Garifuna people are unique in the sense that they identify as Afro-Indigenous, which is an important distinction, one that they've had to stress as part of their effort to protect their ancestral land. Here is Carla Garcia, International Relations Coordinator for Frane, who explains. We are a people that are culturally different. The Garifuna people descend from two populations, one part that is Afro from the Africans who were brought over to be enslaved, and the other part, the maternal part as we have called it, is our indigenous side. We are a mix from the black African and indigenous women of America. And so our culture has both aspects in one, our gastronomy, our spirituality, the way we raise our children, our way of living in community, which is a community that has matriarchal tradition, which comes from our indigenous mother. And there are other components that come together that come from our African father. The use of the drum, our way of fishing, our understanding of the land, understanding of the systems. There are a lot of things that mix together in what is the Garifuna culture. So we cannot deny our father, as we say, by saying we are only indigenous to America or deny our mother, calling us only African. That is the why of the Garifuna people in Honduras and in the world. We always call ourselves Afro-indigenous and not Afro-descendant or simply indigenous. Afro-indigena and no Earlier I mentioned that this distinction of being Afro-Indigenous is important. One of the ways the Andunan state has tried to steal their land has been outright denying their history and their identity. As Carla explains, the two are inseparable. Como pueblo garífuna, nosotros estamos... As a Garifuna people, we were in Honduras before Honduras became independent. In fact, our brave Garifuna men fought in independence wars. That added to the fact that we are also Americans, that is, we are from America. That if we have indigenous blood, it comes together so that the right to the territory is much more respected. That territory that was occupied long before the colony. During the colony, there was no slavery. Instead, there was an agreement with the Spanish crown. Even in the area of Trujillo, the Spaniards made an agreement with the men who even helped to sink pirates and corsair ships. Their presence on the land was never under any conditions. They were here before, and we helped the fight for independence. 
That's why we call ourselves Hondurans, because by saying that the territory wasn't ours, they wanted to claim we weren't Hondurans. The Garifuna people without their territory do not exist. You can see Garifuna people throughout the world, but they are part of the Garifuna community and they are a part of the Garifuna culture when they are in their territory because our territory is intimately linked with our lives, with our spirituality, and with everything that has to do with the Garifuna culture. Our songs speak about the territory in which we buried our loved ones and where we celebrate their lives. The Garifuna community has its own spirituality, a very special spirituality in which we continue to share with our deceased beings who have left their physical bodies and become ancestors, and they come back to look for us and guide us in the territory where they left us. Beyond being the territory, the earth is our mother. Our mother gives us life, gives us food, educates us, because by learning to see the movements of the sea, the tides, the movements of the moon, of the stars, how plants develop at different stages of the year, by seeing how the land accepts. We are also educating ourselves in all of that. Things that perhaps we cannot learn in the universities. The land means the life to the Garifuna community as such. We can continue to exist and coexist in one, in this individualistic world. However, for us, Being in community, being together with everyone, together with the family, is the most important thing to be able to continue the education process around the Garifuna culture. It's because the Garifuna culture is a culture that supports the united family. It is this connection to the land and their territory that is behind the efforts of the Garifuna people to recover their land literally occupying and taking back the land. Of course, this effort brings them into direct conflict with those forces that want to dispossess them. But the Garifuna people are not alone. Right now, the Garifuna communities in Honduras are being so besieged that people are very afraid to continue the process of reclaiming territory. There have been many murders. 2019 was a record year for murders of people who have been defending the right to territory. And in 2020, the murders continued, and we even have four enforced disappearances in Triunfo de la Cruz. All these murders, these forced disappearances, the siege and the criminalization that is being done against the defenders of the territory is typical of the problem we face. They go against them precisely because they are defending the territory that makes the community in Honduras afraid to raise their voice. But once the Garifuna community in the United States raises its voice and says, no, we are here too, and we are fighting for the same thing, and we are going to accompany each other in this process, this allows the community in Honduras to feel that it has that embrace of support, not from abroad, but from its own children, from cousins, from the community to continue this fight. It is vital. It is super important to have the support and not only from the Garifunas, 
who are in the United States. We have many Garifunas in Europe. Even Ofrane already has a space where young Garifunas are working in Germany. In Italy, they are also approaching these entities in Europe to also continue raising our voices against territorial dispossession. With the election of Xiomara Castro from the leftist Libre Party and the defeat of the National Party dictatorship, there is renewed hope in Honduras today. But an election won't solve everything. The owners of capital aren't going to simply walk away. And it will take time and effort to dismantle the institutions left behind by the dictatorship that act against the Garifuna people. For those of you interested in learning more about the Garifuna struggle and about Honduras generally, I invite you to check out the Honduras Now podcast, produced and hosted by my friend and comrade, Karen Spring. That is the program for today. I have some personal news. I started a master's program in defense and promotion of human rights at the Autonomous University of Mexico City. Unfortunately, this means I will be stepping away from the program. It has been a pleasure bringing you the voices of popular struggle from Latin America. I, of course, will continue reporting on the region. And if you'd like to follow my work, you can follow me on social media. My handle is at Granado Ceja. Stay tuned for new projects from Common Frontiers. And as always, hasta la victoria siempre. <laughs>